Well, good morning. How you guys doing? Good. It's good to see you. If I haven't met you before, my name is Matt Campbell, one of the leaders here, and uh, it's good to see you. We'd love to talk with you afterward. Um, I'll tell you, it's been uh, a heavy week um, in the preparation for this, as you can imagine. Um, and it's been fascinating to do this passage and this right now in the middle of September. And I'll, I'll tell you a few reasons why. Um, first, because very obviously it's, it's heavy stuff, right? If you knew today, and maybe you did because you've been following in the series, but you knew today that you'd be coming in here to sit through the retelling of horrific torture of an innocent person, uh, most of us would have called in sick. <laughs> I might have called in sick, maybe, right? Um, second, because for a lot of us, this story is a story of our Savior, right? It hits us in our heart because of who our Savior is. It would have been a lot easier if God sent his son to just zap all of evil with laser eyes, right? And then just take us away to this perfect planet, and that's called Superman. We are not the church of Superman, right? We are the church of Jesus Christ. And this is the story of how God saves from sin. This is a story that by dying, our Savior took the cross so that we might live. Thirdly, uh, why this is, was a heavy week and why this is just so odd to be doing it now is crucifixion is insane. Crucifixion is crazy. Even one of Rome's own prominent politicians, Cicero, had this to say about crucifixion. It was the cruelest and most hideous punishment possible. The two main ideas of crucifixion were to put criminals and heathens up on these poles as kind of these warning signposts that if you go against the great and mighty Rome, this is what happens to you. And if that doesn't deter you, we're going to make this as gruesome and undesirable as possible. The main reason for death on the cross isn't necessarily loss of blood, but it's actually suffocation. Okay, it's actually suffocation, putting nails through the hands and the feet, you can only hold yourself up for so long before your lungs give out. Lastly, my reasoning, for it was so hard, and there's more, but it just struck me as odd because I found myself resisting it a little bit because I'm saying, hey, it's not spring. Like, we're not even close to Easter yet. Why are we going through this? And that struck me as even more odd because, at least for me, I've put the cross in a box. I've put the cross in a box, only to be opened once a year, where I know a few days later I can drown my sorrows in chocolate bunnies, right? And I can eat all my feelings. But the more that I studied it, the more I just sat in it, the more I realized, man, the cross is so central to the way of Jesus. The cross is so central. Why else would Paul write later to the early church in Galatians 2.20, said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This has to mean something for us now. This becomes our identity. And as we'll see, this is not an end point for Jesus. This is the beginning of new life that he has made possible for those who want to start new life with him. So even though our series of Mark is coming to a close, next week is our last one in Mark, and then we're going to be doing First Peter, which I'm really excited about. We're coming to a close talking about Jesus' death. This is more a proclamation, not of the end, but of the beginning of eternity, especially when we get to what happens after his death. No spoilers, right? No spoilers. 
But remember, Mark opens his gospel with this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We are learning the beginning of the gospel. So let's pray and let's begin. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Mark, his writing, thank you for this series as we've just gotten to understand um, a little bit more of who you are through the person and character of Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the passage today, as gruesome as it is, that it is crucial to your plan for salvation. And we want to sit in it today. We want to worship you today in that. Thank you for your truth. We pray in your name. Amen. So if you remember the last few weeks, Jesus has prepared his followers for something like this to happen. In fact, he literally hands them bread and says, this is my body, and then he breaks the bread, broken for you. And he literally hands them wine and says, this is my blood spilled for you. This is going to happen, and when it does, what happens? All of his followers bail. They all run away. Jesus then is put under this unfair trial, this biased trial, where he is falsely accused of being a blasphemer, claiming to be the king of the Jews, which would be considered high treason against Rome as no one was allowed to set themselves up as king. Of course, within this, because for us this is a huge deal, for them it's another crucifixion. Like this is what Rome does. This is just another Tuesday, right? So there's still rules. There's still traditions. Traditionally, Pilate and Rome released a prisoner to the people at the time of Passover, which this is not a Jewish tradition. This is a Roman tradition, okay? Something that they wanted to do to appease the people, to kind of stay in this good favor. Meanwhile, as Mark's gospel has been closely following this Jesus of Nazareth, who we've been following, to be the Savior of the people through love, through mercy, through self-sacrifice, there's been a different supposed Savior at work. This man's name was Barabbas, okay? Do you know what historians believe his first name to be? Jesus. <laughs> There's two Jesuses. You can look that up. Two Jesuses. Okay, Jesus of Nazareth and then Jesus Barabbas. Okay, one is, you think that's a coincidence? I don't think so. One is meek and mild. One is strong and fearless. One leads the blind and the lame and the outcast, and one leads the activists and the people who are sick of taking it from Rome. Both are rebel leaders. One is guilty of murder and violence, and one is innocent of all crimes and sin for that matter and both are willing to die for their cause. Now, for me, Barabbas holds a special place for a few reasons. First, we haven't encountered this man before now, and I, and I think literarily it's genius that now we encounter this, right? The man a lot of people wish Jesus of Nazareth was is Barabbas, the one who's going to take it to Rome, the one who's going to lead the people with sword, right? They want a warrior king who will take them to battle against big bad Rome and see it burn from the inside out. This was the way of the sword. But remember Jesus, in the garden of his betrayal, he says, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? In other words, my way is not the way of the sword. Secondly, what Barabbas represents. If I'm honest, a lot of time I want to follow Barabbas. Right? I'm angry. I want to do something about it. Barabbas was believed to be of the zealots sect, which primarily took control over aggression and action. Like They were super angry and deeply resented the Roman takeover of Palestine, and they wanted to take back control. Does anyone in here 
feel like you, you are out of control of your life and you've ever, you've ever wanted to take back control of your life. Have you ever felt that? Now, listen, right now, I know this is like a hot topic because I'm not talking about COVID or presidencies or politicians or anything like that. But just in general, when you think about life, how much are we really in control of? Like for me, like I, it feels claustrophobic when I think about how much I'm, I'm actually not in control of my life. What's fascinating is Barabbas' name means Bar, which is son of Abba, father. His name is literally son of the father. Two options here. First, we have no idea who he is, and this is our best guess. He is son of a father, <laughs> right? It's probably true. There's some dad out there. But theologically, this is a connection to us, right? To me, I am the son of the father. I have fleshly desires to take control of my own life. I have the ability, if I wanted to, to rebel and potentially lead others alongside me to take back what we perceive is ours. So we have two Jesuses. One I want to be like, and one I am already naturally like. Now let's put ourselves in Pilate's shoes. He has all the reasons he needs to kill Barabbas. He doesn't see any reason to kill Jesus. In fact, uh, chapter 15, verse 10, what does it say? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him, being Jesus, up. So this is actually a big deal because the grounds, the, the grounds for, for a Roman crucifixion was crime against Rome itself. Jesus has committed no such crime. So the only grounds then for, for, would be for him to go against Caesar. But he has this insight and discernment to see that this isn't even the reason they're wanting to kill Jesus. It's because Jesus is too popular. Because Jesus is taking away from them what they think is theirs. They're jealous. We get a tad bit more insight from Matthew's account during this trial that Pilate's also influenced by his own wife. Matthew 27, 19. Besides him, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, said, saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Like, that's a lot of influence right there, right? Pilate's confused. Why would they want to release Barabbas instead of Jesus? And there's this influence now from his wife. So he asks in verse 12 of 15, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? For Pilate, it's not a shoo-in at all that this man, probably just a crazy person claiming to be God, should be crucified as a crime against Rome on a wooden cross. And if it's not obvious to Pilate, then maybe there are some alternatives to punishment. Verse 13, they cry out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Give him the death that the guilty Barabbas was to have. We already have the cross, Pilate. We already had it ready. You were, al you were already going to do this crucifixion today. Why not just give us Barabbas and kill Jesus instead, what is it to you who we kill? Apparently, it is not worth disappointing the people. Verse 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. I like starting out with who is not the Savior. Barabbas was the kind of Savior the people wanted, courageous, willing to fight, willing to be martyred for what they're fighting for, taking action and fighting the man. 
and yet he did not die. He did not take on the sins of the world. He couldn't have. He was the guilty who was set free. Now, personally, a lot of you guys know me, but one decision I made a long time ago, and much to the chagrin of my mom, I actually got Barabbas uh, tattooed onto my arm. Now you might say, Matt, why would you do that? Okay, and I'm not, I'm not advocating for tattoos here, but I just want to show you guys, this was a couple years ago. So I have this tree here, if you can see that, and roots to everyone else, but the roots here in the Greek letters is Barabbas. And for me, this was huge, because in this story, I realized that I am Barabbas. I am Barabbas. I am the guilty set free. In my flesh, I have the potential outside of Jesus to lead rebellions like this, to take control of my own life, to do whatever my will is. And I wanted that daily reminder. I needed that reminder for me. But with Christ, I can grow into something new and different. And that was huge for me. I also wanted a tattoo where someone said, what's your tattoo? And I get to just tell them the gospel. Like, how can you explain Barabbas without that, right? So again, not advocating for tattoos, but, um, but you can talk to Randall about tattoos. Um, <laughs> but it was a big deal for me, uh, and that's huge, right? I need that reminder for me that I am not the savior of my life. Barabbas is not the savior of all people. It was Jesus and Jesus alone. I am the guilty and set free. So Jesus, back to our story, he was sent to be scourged or flogged. And here's where we get into some brutal parts. Um, So I apologize, it's the story. Um, But scourging was a severe beating. Uh, The Jewish actually had a custom that they would limit it to 40 beatings or 40 lashes. Rome had no such limit. Um, Often death occurred before they even got to crucifixion. The flogging was done with various objects, but the most brutal was this whip called a cat of nine tails made of leather that they would put, they would tie bits of metal or bone or sharp rocks on the end so that when it hit the skin, it would go in and then rip out. Terrible, right? What's interesting is that flogging is not prescribed before crucifixion. Potentially, Pilate is hoping that maybe Jesus dies before the crucifixion and he can feel a little bit less guilty about this man's innocence. Again, death often occurred before they even got to the crucifixion. So flogging would have happened in the palace square in a public setting for anyone to witness. Again, the idea is to show this is what happens to anyone who goes against Rome. Now chapter 15, 16, right after that, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. None of this, what we just read, is recorded as regularly happening to criminals who were crucified. This wasn't just going through the motions. This was way above and beyond the standard, and obviously heavily influenced by evil acts and hardness of heart. They brought him to the governor's headquarters, which, as you've been following now in the series of Mark, you'll see why this is significant, because this was Herod's house. This was Herod's private residence, and they brought a battalion. That's about 600 soldiers. So none of this had to happen, but Herod now, they bring Jesus into his very courtyard with 600 soldiers. Herod, who had all throughout the Gospel of Mark had this kind of private war going on where he wanted to be the king of the Jews. Here now, assuming he is there and watching the true king of the Jews being beaten down and ridiculed, probably convinced 
that he's getting what he's, he deserves, and his main competition now is out of the way. He has a whole battalion take part in a depraved, sadistic mockery. This is what they did. Verse 17, And they clothed him in purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and they put his own clothes on him. It's difficult to think of a more brutal, dehumanizing, and evil way to treat someone. Right? This should, right now, this should break our hearts, because it did not break their hearts. That was the full hardness of the world in human form. And when that mockery was done and they'd have their fun and their perverted sense of justice was accomplished, verse 20, they led him out to crucify him. And as custom went, they forced the criminals to carry their own cross to a place where then they would die on it. Jesus, of course, was incredibly weak by all the beatings, by the severe loss of blood. So they compelled this passerby, Simon, and it says the father of Alexander and Rufus, to come help. Now, it's interesting to note of who his sons were. There's always like some historical evidence for these people, but also uh, Rufus is mentioned in uh, Romans. Paul says, say greetings to Rufus. So 30-some years later, as Mark is writing this to his audience, it would have been, hey, remember your dad? Remember when he came and he helped Jesus? Here, this is part of their father's legacy of helping share in the burden of the cross. They brought Jesus to this place called the Skull where they perform the crucifixions. And there's a surprising line of mercy here by the soldiers. Verse 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. All right, this was a practice. This would have helped numb some of the pain, but it also mixed with myrrh, which is incredibly bitter. So it wasn't supposed to be enjoyable, if anything could be enjoyable in this experience. Verse 24, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Throughout the crucifixion, there's this connection back to this psalm written by David when David was in a horribly difficult time in his life. And he could never have known what this possibly would have meant, literally. But this is Psalm 22. I'll read a few verses. David wrote this, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me, and they divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. And often with crucifixions, they place a plaque above the offender's head to display why they were killed, what their crime was. This is what they did, and this is why they died. Verse 26, And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. If you look back, Jesus never actually said this. Pilate asked him, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you say I am. But of course, in a very real sense, this is who he is. Someone setting himself up as king was, of course, seen as high treason to Rome as the ultimate authority. So they crucified him for it. Verse 27, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Now, some scholars believe that these two robbers were to be criminals who were captured along with Barabbas. Barabbas was supposed to be with them. He was supposed to be in the middle cross. Jesus took his place. So where was their fearless leader now? Right? Instead, this other one was risen up with them. 
There is, of course, much more spent on these two robbers in other Gospels, but I think what's fascinating is hearkening back to chapter 10 of Mark. Do you remember where James and John came up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, grant us this one wish? And they said, verse 37, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And how does Jesus respond? You do not know what you are asking. This is his glory, right? This is it. This is what he has to go through for glory. Covered in precious innocent blood, sacrificing himself for the sake of others. Now, our church, we're a church of of more the Protestant tradition, and the more I look to our Catholic brothers and sisters, um, especially when it comes to the cross, especially when it comes to spiritual practices, I'm profoundly uh, appreciative of their perspectives Um, and especially insights from the patron saints. And I I read this from St. Augustine, Augustine, however you say it. said, the thief escaped, Christ was condemned. He who was guilty of many crimes received pardon. He who pardoned every criminal willing to confess was condemned. Yet the very cross itself, if you will stop to consider, was a judgment seat with a judge set up in the middle between a thief to be pardoned and a thief to be condemned. Here the final judgment is prefigured with defendants separated left and right. Even while being judged himself, he acted the part of a judge. I love that perspective. Jesus is the division between those who believe and those who do not. Jesus is the line you must go through and to enter into belief. And as Jesus is in this upside-down glory, he should be worshipped, he should be praised, and instead he is up there as people are shouting insults and continuing to mock him. And guess who joins in? Verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. The very people who are supposed to recognize the Savior and lead the people closer to God are showing their lack of faith and hardness of heart. And then the time has finally come. Darkness came over the whole land, and Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll never know what it would feel like to experience the weight of sin for the first time. Right? When you're a kid, you have to be kind of told when something is wrong. You might have a sense, right? You might kind of know that maybe I just did something bad, but you kind of have to be told over and over, and you grow this understanding between what is right and what is wrong, right? Because sin is just, it's there all the time. But think about it. Paul writes later, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin. I can't even imagine that feeling. Sin has always been a part of my life, right? That that state of being, I guess on a big level, it really would feel like being ripped apart from this goodness that you've been connected to your whole life. For a dark coldness to take over what has always been this slow warmth of love. It's interesting, in, in the Hebrew phrase of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It starts out with Eli, Eli. They mistake his crying out to be calling out for Elijah, right? Eli, Eli, Elijah. Still not believing this was, this man, Jesus, was the son of God. He was just a rabbi with some supernatural abilities who was calling for Elijah. Elijah was believed to be the one who would come save those who in trouble. 
Verse 36, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. After all of this, to prolong Jesus' suffering, to scratch their curiosity. Maybe something awesome will happen, and this will be the best day ever. Verse 37, instead, Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. Jesus, the man, died. This loud cry at the end would have been surprising for most people who are crucified, let alone what through what Jesus went through being beaten half to death, would not have the strength or the lung power to cry in such a way. But potentially, as we see in the next verse, this is less of a dying man's last breath and more of a shout of victory of someone who has finished the race. Verse 38, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain of the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy of holies. No, no mere man can just enter in. You had to be the high priest to go in, and that was still once a year. And this was supposed to house the presence of God. This is incredibly significant. Because at the time of Jesus' atonement for sins through his death on the cross, the separation of God and man was torn apart. I love the details of from top to bottom. Have you thought about that? What giant curtain have you ever heard of that's always touched and used and, and pulled at the bottom would be torn from top to bottom? Like the wear and tear is always at the bottom. It would have torn up. But God, being on high, has come down to be with his people. He is the one that tore the curtain. What has always been veiled is now unveiled for the people. The access to God is now only restricted by unbelief, not a physical barrier. So who will receive this invitation to believe? And I'll tell you the last person that I would think would have received this post-cross understanding of who Jesus was, and that's a Roman centurion. Centurions were foot soldiers, recruited at a young age, rose in ranks, and this guy right before the cross we're about to read, uh, particularly oversaw crucifixions, okay? A Roman soldier also swore an oath of loyalty and implicit obedience to its supreme commander, and this man's ultimate commander was Rome. Rome was under the belief that the first Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, was divine, and his son, who succeeded him, Tiberius Caesar, was known as the Son of God. This is what any Roman citizen, and for sure any Roman centurion, would have sworn their life into. Who was the first person that the radical, self-sacrificial love of Jesus changed? Right? It wasn't the Pharisees seeing the error of their ways all of a sudden. It wasn't the disciples feeling bad for abandoning Jesus. It was his enemy. One of the very ones who crucified him, beat him, mocked him, and took part in killing him. Verse 39, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Remember the very first line of Mark's gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now we are here with the enemy saying he is the Son of God. Could there be a more compelling story where one where the bad guy at the end of the story is the one who is saved and the good guys who hold all the religious power are the ones who are in the wrong? And this is where we'll end today with you and I in this story. 
Remember throughout his gospel, Mark, through the retelling of Jesus' story by Peter, has written down all these stories and details, and he loves the use of comparisons. Here at the end of Jesus' life, he's alone when his whole adult ministry life has been claustrophobically surrounded by people. Here, as Jesus breathes out his last as the Savior King of the world, it's a Roman centurion who witnesses that he is the Son of God. And now you and me, a few thousand years later, get to hear once again what our God has done for us, and we get the chance to put our faith again in Jesus, to believe that Jesus truly and fully died for our sins on the cross. Because as we started out with who doesn't get to die, we are also in that camp, right? You and I cannot save ourselves. We cannot die for our own sins. We cannot save us from us. But Jesus, this is from Hebrews 12, the one who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Peter, the same Peter, who at one point convinced himself that he would not do this, denied Jesus three times at the end. He later went on to start the church movement and had this to recollect in 1 Peter 2. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like strain, you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. By his wounds you have been healed. And before we move on to next week to the resurrection, which means so much more than Jesus just not being dead. Right? We are going to sit in the magnitude of the cross today. If you believe in the scriptures, then you have to believe this, Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it goes on, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Today we have the opportunity to sit in the cross, to go to the communion table, where we have this little bread and this little juice cup, right? But this is the reminder of the grace that we were given, that you and I fall short of the glory of God, but can receive redemption in believing that Jesus did not. Jesus did not fall short. There was redemption in his blood and his blood alone. And this redemption is the defeat of sin within us, right? Sin has no hold on you. Sin has no hold on me. This is the great illusion of the world that there is still these chains that bind us down. This is not perfect. This is not heaven. But sin does not have a hold on you. Christ defeated sin on the cross. You are no longer slaves to sin. When we take the cup, when we take the bread today, we are in memory of the king who bore on the cross the one who was made to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now what I want to do before we go to respond, I want to read for us the classic passage of Isaiah 53. Okay, it's a few, it's 13 verses long. 
okay, this was the prophecy of the Savior King who was going to come, right? When people thought it was Barabbas, when people thought it was someone else, this was about Jesus, and only Jesus could have fulfilled this. I want to read Isaiah 53 over us, and then we'll go to the tables and worship our King. Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and was a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let me pray and let's respond to our King.